and welcome back to Money Power Health. As you know, this podcast is about money and power and the role they play in shaping population health. I'm particularly interested in the commercial determinants of health, the activities of the private sector and the structures that it operates in that shape health directly and indirectly. One of the values of taking a commercial determinants lens to these issues, in my view, is that it allows us to consider commonalities in things like commercial incentives, strategies, tactics, use of third parties. A key example of this is the commercial influence on science and the generation of knowledge, the biases that it might introduce. That is what the topic of today's podcast is, and for this I'm joined by Professor Lisa Barrow. She's a professor of medicine and public health and chief scientist at the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado. She's senior editor of Research Integrity for the Cochrane Collaboration and was co-chair of the Cochrane Governing Board from 2014 to 2019. In this interview, she mentions meta-science or meta-research, and I just wanted to talk about that briefly in case it's a new term. This is research on research, so research on things like biases, methodological flaws, trends in how studies are designed or conducted and reported, and even citation patterns. For example, to see where there are silos of people that only cite each other's research. Think of it as taking a bird's eye view of science. She's pioneered the use of internal industry documents and transparency databases to understand commercial tactics and motives for research influence, and has developed a range of qualitative and quantitative methods for assessing bias in the design, conduct and dissemination of research. She also kindly contributed a chapter on the industry influence of research for our book, The Commercial Determinants of Health, which is published by Oxford University Press. Professor Lisa Barrow, hello and welcome to Money Power Health. Hi. So there's so much that I wanted to ask you about, just looking back at your career examining the role of bias in research and the role of commercial actors. But I wanted to start with an interesting phrase that I came across in a profile written about you, which was that you had taken the path of most resistance in uh, your choice of research topic. How did you come to be interested in the influence of commercial actors on academic research? Yeah, I started out as a basic scientist. So I was working in a lab and I was working actually on opiates and trying to discover the magic bullet for an opiate that would uh, be effective against pain and have no addictive potential. And it was an interesting area to work in because it quickly became apparent to me that a lot of the use of opiates and policy around opiates uh, didn't have too much to do with what was happening in the lab or research at all. And so it really made me question um, why, why, uh, or it made me question the role of evidence uh, in policy. And so I actually did a postdoc uh, in health policy. So switching from lab science, pharmacology, and literally that changed my life because it really gave me the tools and the background to think about how evidence is used in policy. And my particular interest in that was what are the influences on the evidence? I swear, when I was a graduate student, if I had known about Purdue Pharma, and if I knew now uh, what Purdue Pharma was doing, it probably would have really fast-tracked my career uh, (laughs) because it took me a while to come around to Um, really focusing on commercial or corporate influences on research. But because I started out in pharmaceuticals, obviously there's a big drug industry component of funding all research on pharmaceuticals. So I started to have questions about, you know, why do we have um, drugs that aren't as effective uh, as existing drugs, but cost more? Um, You know, why are we having drugs marketed so heavily based on studies that aren't very well done, uh, you know, that that weren't done for any regulatory purpose? And then as the years rolled on, I just became very interested in looking at corporate strategies to influence research overall. And those are really general. They go across all corporate interests. So. I've done work related to tobacco, pharmaceuticals, uh, chemicals, human studies, a little bit on animal studies, trials, observational epidemiology. And, you know, what we really see is that these strategies to uh, use by um, large corporate interests to influence research are really all the same. Yeah, um, that that's really fascinating to hear. It's sort of there are some parallels to my own journey in that I, too, became 
a little discouraged as a lab scientist, in part um, at uh, the focus of my research, which was, you know, very blue skies on you know, folding DNA aptamers as potential uh, drug candidates and that kind of thing. Interesting. But also at the, at the idea that what treatment would end up going to market and actually being used in patients was at least as much determined by how profitable it was as how effective it was, right? Um, and, you know, there's a much better business case for a tiny percentage of the type 2 diabetes market than there is for treating uh, neglected tropical diseases in low-middle-income countries, right? Exactly. You know, I chaired the Essential Medicines Committee at WHO for a number of years, and, uh, you know, that was that was really interesting because the... the uh, the essential medicines list can have very expensive drugs on it, but the essential medicines list doesn't put every single drug in a class on it. You can have a choice depending on what's available in the country, what's most cost effective in your setting. And so really, you know, we have an excess of uh, drugs on some topics. And as you mentioned, absolutely, you know, not enough drugs uh, on, on other topics. And again, you know, we see this, uh, you know, with other uh, industries, it's not just pharma that, um, you know, the, the research questions can be uh, influenced. I think we're going to get a little more into kind of the detail on these these mechanisms. Um, and it's very interesting about your journey and switching. And, and I guess you asked me about the path of most resistance. And obviously, uh, there are a lot of people, uh, my scientific colleagues who, you know, when you get out of the lab, people feel, wow, you're really taking a wrong turn. You're throwing away this promising career. So <laughs> that was the first bit of resistance was just changing my career out of the lab. And then the second bit, as you might imagine, uh, was studying, um, you know, big, powerful corporations. So that's been sort of an ongoing uh, challenge. Yeah. And on that point, um, you, you mentioned in, in some of your work, the different ways in which science can be influenced by commercial actors, not just in the reporting of results, but also in the design of studies and even in the, the shaping of research agendas. And I was wondering if you could speak a, li a little bit more about, about this, about the cycle of bias that you uh, make reference to. Yeah, so we coined that term in 2013 in a paper I did with uh, Donna Oderna. And uh, we had been studying different aspects of this research cycle, but then I really realized research is a cyclical process, right? So there, you design the study, you have a research question. The next step is uh, study is um, uh, the methods are uh, designed to test the question. And then you have to conduct the study according to how the methods uh, were designed. And then a lot can go on behind the scenes. And then the last step is the results or the findings are published or not. And then those published data then influence, you know, the ongoing research questions. And so if you look at any sort of uh, influence in that cycle, and of course our, you know, interest has always been commercial influence, it can happen at every step. And initially a lot of people started out studying uh, industry influence on publication because uh, publications were there. You could actually do uh, meta research type studies to uh, see if there are gaps in publications. You could compare publications to protocols or what you got from regulatory agencies. And you could see that the full story was not being published. But then, you know, people uh, really started needing to dig into what was going on behind the scenes. You know, why wasn't uh, everything getting published or why was it getting published in, in different ways? Researchers have looked at the design of the studies and how they're conducted, and then really backed up to looking at the research uh, agenda. And you know, we've done some work on that in the uh, food industry area uh, with my colleague uh, Alice Fabri. We've looked at food industry company-sponsored research and compared it to uh, matched uh, topics in nutrition um, funded by other funders. And what we found was that uh, the food industry sponsored research tended to focus on uh, nutrients or micronutrients or small components in a product that could be manipulated and then used to commercial advantage. And so you could advertise uh, a low fat 
energy bar, you know, which might have tons of sugar in it, but you could say it was low fat. And this is based on a study that showed decreasing this little bit type of fat had some improved outcome. And so the industry sponsored studies steered away from questions looking at dietary patterns or whole food uh, eating uh, patterns. And so this was really an example of how corporate interests would drive the research agenda towards questions that could potentially benefit their bottom line, because it's very hard to manipulate um, someone's entire dietary pattern, but you could get them to eat energy bars that are high in sugar through creative marketing and citing a study that says it's good. And you know, we had done work in tobacco years earlier um, on indoor air, a group called the Center for Indoor Air Research, uh, and they were doing uh, research on interestingly, secondhand smoke. And bottom line, the peer-reviewed research they funded on secondhand smoke didn't actually focus on that topic. It focused on carpet off-gassing or plants in your office. And basically, this was a way to distract from secondhand smoke as a health hazard, because they would show that carpet off-gassing, for example, could cause lung irritation. Um, And then that would be used in uh, court cases to show we should really be regulating carpets, not wow. um, cigarettes in the air. And so it was a very elaborate plan, really, to create a body of research to distract from harm of a product, or in the case of the food industry and more the pharmaceutical industry, to create an evidence base that promotes the benefits of a product that could then be sold uh, commercially. So you know, looking at the research agenda is is very um, difficult in some ways because you have to look across a wide, wide body of evidence. And of course, one argument always is, well, you know, corporate interests can fund whatever they want. And that is absolutely true. But I think in the public health community, we have to be aware that we might be getting a really skewed view of the evidence that might be either overestimating some sort of benefit or distracting us from what a real problem is. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, it strikes me that there there are these cascading indirect effects that you're kind of alluding to through through the funding of uh, research in certain directions, right? So you talked about food and micronutrients and focusing on, I guess, additive ingredients that can then be marketed in processed foods. Another example from our own research was Uh, physical activity research sponsored by Coca-Cola. And on the one hand, I could totally understand why physical activity researchers would say, well, I believe in that physical activity is important and Coca-Cola is offering to fund my research on a really large scale. Why would I not do that? You know, that seems like an obvious win-win. And then when we looked at emails obtained through freedom of information requests between Coca-Cola uh, and staff at the CDC uh, responsible for obesity management and prevention, we find that Coca-Cola was using not just the studies, but even some of the researchers as sort of a way to influence uh, CDC staff, you know, a way to get them to think that actually maybe the cause isn't really sugar-sweetened beverages. Maybe it is about physical activity. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about was when you're dealing with something that's tied to individual researchers, right? Like, so uh, research outputs, um, citations, and these kind of things. Um, How do you deal with some of the fallout that comes from that? Because there there does seem to be, um, and certainly I find it in my own work, uh, a defense response sometimes to (laughs) any evidence uh, of bias, certainly, especially as it relates to, to funding. Yeah, well, we try not to focus on individuals and look at bodies of evidence. Um, I mean, that doesn't always work because obviously sometimes you find uh, groups of research or research from particular groups that, uh, you know, dominates a, a particular research area. But I think uh, the technique of meta research, uh, which is, you know, research on research across, you know, large bodies of evidence um, is really valuable in trying to deflect the fact that it's just not certain individuals or a couple of bad actors that's producing this problem, but it's really the whole 
uh, funding and as you know, cycle of bias in research that creates this problem. And there are many individuals involved in that. Now, I, like you, have done research looking at internal documents and emails that have been revealed. And, you know, that that is very, very compelling research. And that's an area where it does tend to, um, you know, focus on individuals sometimes because you have the people who have signed uh, the documents. And, um, you know, certainly with um, some tobacco industry researchers, when we've published a paper, uh, you know, we've been accused of bias or uh, actually defamation. But because our data, um, it, you know, our research is based on data and evidence that we can produce, um, whether it's, uh, you know, qualitative evidence or meta research, uh, we've always had a, a good uh, defense uh, against that. This is really fascinating, Lisa, because I can I can see that were I to make a presentation on bias in research um, and offer to present it to scientific colleagues, I think a lot of my scientific colleagues would say, well, we learned about bias in research in our undergraduate studies, right? Or in our master's. You know, I know all there is to know about bias in research. And I, you know, put things in my disclosures and, and on I go kind of thing. I mean, what has, what have you found the response is from the wider research community to your findings of these kind of systemic biases? And how have you thought about maximizing the penetration and the impact of those kind of findings? Yeah, that's a that's a really great uh, question. And, uh, you know, it's something I've been working on for 20 years, so I'm not sure there's an easy answer. But uh, I mean, when when people and researchers have come back to me and say, oh, we've learned all about bias and um, often they're really focusing on the internal validity of the study or the part that I call, um, you know, bias in the methods uh, of the study. And interestingly, I mean, commercial research often uh, ticks all the boxes in terms of those um, methods uh, because, uh, you know, there are minimum standards for reporting, there are minimum standards for regulatory approval. Um, so just, you know, using the example of a, a drug study, uh, you can create a trial that meets regulatory approval by the FDA, um, but maybe it's only, you know, one trial on the drug that grants it its approval. Um, and it actually doesn't uh, ask the right question or it doesn't have the relevant comparator. I mean, but it could be, in, you know, internally valid. So it could be of a very high, you know, randomization and blinding and, and all that. So, so the first thing I do is I try to get researchers to think about uh, bias uh, broader than that, just the internal validity of a study and think about the whole publication system. And interestingly, a lot of researchers will glom on um, pretty quickly to the fact that uh, research can be suppressed at the publication level. Or, um, you know, we, we did an interview with uh, investigators who had published randomized control trials of drugs who had statements in their trials that said, you've seen this, I'm sure, you know, the sponsor was not involved in the design, conduct, or publication. And when we interviewed them, 80% of the first authors or corresponding authors said they didn't have the last say on the publication. Wow. And in interview, uh, they described different ways that the sponsor had had input either on the design conduct or the actual publication. And so, you know, it can be, it can be subtle and, and a lot of researchers do, um, do pick up on that, that they're getting pressure kind of at the publication end. And then I think, you know, as we've been talking about the research agenda, I don't think, I think that's a harder sell for researchers because they believe that um, basically they're in control of the topics that they uh, study. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, I think in today's world, it's pretty naive to think that uh, funding doesn't drive a lot of what we uh, study. I mean, even in even in my world, it was always very, uh, well, not always, I can tell you a story about that, but it became easier to get research on studying uh, bias in tobacco industry research, for example, than pharmaceutical research. And so I used to actually include pharmaceutical research as a comparison in those studies. So I would get to look at, at both. Um, but there was no question that the funders were driving my research towards looking at tobacco industry tactics. So I think, you know, researchers uh, resist the fact that um, 
you know, their their questions are being um, driven. But I, I think, you know, you can't do research for free now. So somebody's somebody's funding it and somebody is going to have some influence through that funding. And corporate influence, as I said, is very powerful because um, it tends to go in the same direction, that influence. It tends to go in favor of uh, whatever uh, products are, are involved. So unlike, um, you know, government-funded research where a variety of hypotheses in different uh, directions uh, may be of interest when commercially sponsored research, what we've seen is that the the hypotheses tend to be in one direction. You know, they want to show benefit of the drug or they want to minimize harm. Yeah, and uh, what, you're, what you're talking about makes me think of, of two different types of biasing effects. And just as a very amateurish reflection on this, when it comes to evaluation research, and in particular evaluating things like uh, corporate social responsibility initiatives or partnerships or things of that nature. Um, because where you have industry-sponsored evaluations, right, which is a, a lot of the time what you have, then they are deciding the kind of outcomes. So we've looked at, uh, we've done some work on alcohol industry-funded charities, for example. And, you know, when they're evaluating their own uh, initiatives, they'll often be evaluating things like, you know, retention of a message or, you know, memorability this kind of thing, rather than, you know, explicitly linking it to reductions in, in drinking, for example. And so on the one hand, you have the biasing effect of industry obviously designing evaluations in ways that make their corporate social responsibility initiatives look extremely effective and favorable. And you can understand why they would do that. But on the other hand, when it comes to independently evaluating the same activities, then it's very hard to get data. Um, and, you know, you can understand again why a company might not want to provide data if there's a chance that it it might reflect unfavorably on it. So do, do you think that's the case, that there's this kind of almost double biasing effect, that there is a preponderance of uh, more favorable outcomes <laughs> with... Uh, with greater penetration because the industry also has the resources to kind of amplify those messages. And on the other hand, due to data being commercial in confidence or just them being unwilling to share it, there's a there's an opposite effect when it comes to independently evaluating uh, industry activity. Yeah, I think both those mechanisms are, are at play, uh, certainly. I mean, we see, you know, I was thinking of occupational health as an example while you were... Um, talking about that, you know, so there's been a lot of, uh, in the chemical area, vinyl chloride, you know, there's been uh, studies looking at, uh, like within, you know, workers uh, who are working with these chemicals, um, the companies have done internal studies to see if there's, you know, harm, harm to the workers. And there they might not be studying the outcomes that um, researchers uh, outside think would be important to study. So, you know, they, they may not be looking at long-term outcomes. They may be looking at something like short-term irritation, not lung nodules or something like that. Um, and then when, if, you know, externally uh, funded research can get funded, then those researchers have the problem of getting the data, um, you know, from uh, the companies uh, on the workers' health, because that could be controlled by the company. Uh, to actually answer the broader question. So I think, you know, both those factors are at, at play and, and uh, occupational health is a, is a good example going way, way back. I think of both of those, um, you know, obstacles being, being put before researchers because, uh, yeah, I mean, corporate control of data or internal research, uh, you know, we, we don't even know sometimes until many, many years after uh, what kind of data was available. I mean, the tobacco industry documents and documents you've seen are, are classic examples uh, of that. You know, internal data comes out 20 years later. It's a bit too late. Yeah, I'm just thinking about um, ExxonMobil and the studies by Naomi Oreskes um, and Supran on what was known internally and when data-wise uh, about, you know, uh, the links between fossil fuels and global warming and how that contrasted with outward facing advertorials and things like that over the same time span. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think those timelines are so valuable that look at, you know, what was known internally and then what was known um, in, in the peer reviewed literature. We've done some research with my colleagues at UCSF, Tracy Woodruff, on these PFAS and PFOA, you know, the forever chemicals. And, you know, again, those are examples where um, companies had internal data way before anything was published in the peer reviewed literature. So I wonder if I might um, ask you about the differences you've experienced or, or not uh, when you conduct research in different research communities, right? Um, because a lot of the time, r research on, for example, harmful products or products more generally is quite siloed by area. So you might go to uh, alcohol uh, research conferences, and that's a whole community, a whole microenvironment. And you might go to tobacco control conferences, a whole different community and microenvironment and from the perspective of meta research you know these are uh, like areas that don't overlap really you know they don't they don't uh, cross site each other's work or or that kind of thing and i was wondering if you'd found different responses or perspectives to industry funding and bias i'm just struck that in some areas for example nutrition or say gambling research either historically or even today it's it represents quite a large proportion of overall uh, funded research um, in other areas, maybe either just through the culture in that particular research silo or from what has come to light. Uh, there's been more of a focus on conflicts of interest. Does that seem fair? Could you reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you're right. These are siloed communities to to some extent. I mean, interestingly, um, what internal documents have shown us is that a lot of the consultants who work for industry on particular topics are actually cross cutting. Um, so I remember, you know, I was doing work looking at uh, pharmaceutical industry sponsored conferences. And at the time, uh, this is no longer possible. But at the time, there were a lot of industry paid uh, speakers who came to the meetings as consultants and read out papers. And when I was looking at tobacco industry documents, I was like, well, that's interesting because here's like the same speakers. And, you know, later we could look at their CVs and we do see that some of these, um, and particularly people who critique the science, uh, you know, so um, critique aspects of say, like how big an odds ratio do you need to say something statistically significant? So there could be a consultant on that who talked about that across, you know, pharma, alcohol, uh, tobacco. So, so there is uh, some cross-cutting among uh, the industry-affiliated um, uh, uh, folks, uh, but the communities, I do think, have very different reactions to this um, issue of uh, industry uh, bias. Um, and I think one of the main reasons is that they feel the, the product or that they're dealing with is fundamentally different. And so I would be the first to agree that I would consider uh, tobacco uh, a harmful product. And I would also say that drugs can be beneficial. So I see them as kind of opposite ends of the, the spectrum. And to me, the corporate influences on research are totally independent of the product mm. uh, because it's really the uh, commercial motive, the commercial determinant of health uh, that we're worried about here. And that whether the product is considered always harmful or sometimes harmful or sometimes beneficial, depending on the context, it doesn't really matter. But is the research being created and promoted in a way that uh, drives the use of that product uh, for commercial benefit for the company that then influences the health of the people. So that's, I think, you know, the communities think their, their product or their, you know, everybody says to me in nutrition, well, people need to eat, you know, we need food. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, do we need processed food? You know, there's like a lot that goes under that umbrella. So I, I do think the communities um, try to distinguish themselves <laughs> based on the goodness of their their product or not but but really as i said before the strategies are the same and there's still a commercial determinant of health there with the companies that are driving this research um, that then affects our health yeah no, that's 
that's right. And it strikes me that maybe thinking more about the commercial determinants of health is in part about focusing on companies or sectors as units of measurement rather than on individual products and sort of harm per product, <laughs> you know, and thinking more about markets and, uh, you know, key sources of, of revenue and those kind of things. I have to thank you, by the way, because a paper that you wrote, I think it was back in maybe 2003, it was like a review on tobacco industry, um, tobacco industry documents and research that had come out of tobacco industry documents. There was just a re you really succinctly summarized um, one of the key learnings from the tobacco industry documents, which was that they were motivated by profit. And within that, they were motivated by, you know, seeking to reduce legal liability, protect their reputation, and prevent regulation, which might harm their uh, their future revenue. And those motives are n not unique or exceptional to the tobacco industry. Any any publicly owned company needs to care about those things all the time. The other thing that I remember that paper said was that, uh, you know, internally uh, the industry knew the role of advertising you know they knew how harmful their product was and you put those two together it's really is what determines the kind of strategies and tactics that then follow the kind of third-party organizations that might be used so i think that was a really powerful message that we're not talking about evil individuals or um you know particularly malign actors necessarily we're talking about incentives and uh, how they play out when you've got that level of, of corporate power and single-mindedness. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when we're talking about research that's motivated by profit, which is what this is is all about, I mean, that, that's, um, that's a really important commercial determinant of health that I think uh, maybe was, uh, you know, hasn't gotten as much uh, play as, as a lot of the other important areas because you know, people think, well, research, you know, how important is it? It's only one factor that contributes to policy, if at all, you know, and and I think that's it. We have to think about, OK, if commercial incentives are driving research and then that research is used for a variety of purposes to influence policy, to, you know, to make messaging for advertising, to counteract um lawsuits that are in progress. You know, I mean, it, it has a, a lot of purposes that research. And so I think, you know, we have to consider uh, influences on the research base as a very important um, commercial determinant of health because it plays out in a lot of different areas. Absolutely. I mean, so we've talked a bit about uh, bias and the ways in which that can that can come through. And we've talked about differences and similarities across bodies of evidence and uh, silos of research. I guess the, the question that one gets quite a lot when talking about, you know, the role of commercial actors generally is, okay, well, what are your what are your solutions then? Um, you know, what, what are your action points? Which on the one hand, you know, I find uh, a little troubling personally because I think science has a, a responsibility just to bear witness to forces that shape the world, not not always to have um, the perfect solution to those forces, but also to problematize things, right? But certainly, I'm, I'm sure that's a question you've gotten. So what do you see as the intervention points, if any, to help reduce uh, this kind of influence and bias? So I want to think about what we want to achieve. And I think the two things we really can achieve when we talk about reducing commercial bias in research are independence and transparency. And so we want the research to be as independent as possible from the commercial sponsor. And we want any influence of the sponsor to be transparent. Uh, there's lots of different players there, and I'll, I'll get into that. And I think we've made, unfortunately, much more progress in the transparency area than the independence area. So, you know, over, over the course of my career, I've seen a lot of improvements in transparency. We have data to back it up. There's more disclosure of funding sources now. You know, I used to look at bodies of evidence where 80% didn't have a funding disclosure. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, now it's 20%. So it's, it's completely flipped. And, um, uh, you know, we have more disclosure of individual 
um, uh, per, you know, financial ties. Um, I think in a way the individuals have been focused on too much because it's been it's been easier to implement. You know, we can get every individual researcher to disclose on their uh, paper. But what we really want to know is what that sponsor is doing and, uh, you know, sort of the whole scope of everything that sponsor has been uh, funding. So uh, and we need to know, for example, if a, a university uh, has all industry funded researchers or a totally industry funded department or if, you know, these these are just individuals. So I totally agree with a point that's been made by a lot of folks and we haven't had a lot of progress that the focus on the individual is, uh, you know, I think we still need that disclosure, but it's a bit, um, it, it's not sufficient, right? So, and then overall, I think the move towards transparency has been great, but again, it's not sufficient. Um, and actually we know that from meta research, right? Because all meta research is done based on what's disclosed about funding. And when we do those studies, we see that based on disclosures about funding and conflicts of interest, we can detect this bias, right? So we're obviously not eliminating any sort of bias um, by having transparency. So what's happening in the independence um, department? Uh, I think, you know, uh, the most radical solutions uh, have been to not uh, accept industry funding in certain contexts. And there are examples of that. There are examples of organizations that will not accept funding from, uh, you know, food companies, will not accept funding from tobacco companies. There are journals that will not publish um, tobacco industry funded research. Um, there are journals that won't publish uh, well, the Cochrane Library, for example, won't publish a review if it's been funded by uh, a commercial sponsor affiliated with the product being tested. So, so there are examples of that. Um, so I don't think, you know, sometimes people say that's, that's just completely ridiculous, a pipe dream. And I, I don't think it is. I mean, I think you can have certain um, uh, bans on funding in certain uh, context. Um, and then the other way to improve independence has been to try to put up firewalls of various sorts between the research that's actually being done and the sponsors. Um, and that can involve like saying we need to create a consortia of sponsors so that one particular sponsor um, doesn't uh, have control over the research or is the single sponsor. I've, I've been at a couple universities where we've tried to implement this. And interestingly, nobody puts money in the pool because once they um, can't be the sole sponsor of research, uh, they they may lose some control. They wouldn't say that, but also they may not like to collaborate with their competitors in terms of funding. So um, so that that is a model that's out there. It's not been so successful. Um, and then the other way is to really try to build into uh, contracts, uh, if you have them, um, you know, guarantees on the independence of the research. And as I alluded to before with that study we did, there can be a contract that says, you know, the sponsor's not involved, but in reality, they may have some influence. So again, that's, you know, not been implemented 100%. So I think yeah, we, we're doing pretty good on transparency. We also have more open data sharing, for example, so that uh, people uh, can check um, on, uh, you know, selective reporting and things like that. Uh, but we still have a ways to go with independence, but, but models are uh, out there. And, um, you know, some institutions need to, you know, really try to implement those more broadly. And, and who's involved? Well, you know, you know, academic research institutions are involved, the funders are involved, um, and then the, uh, you know, the sponsors themselves and the individual researchers. But, um, you know, as, as I mentioned before, putting the whole burden on the individual researcher is not going to solve the problem. So, oh, that's really interesting. I guess, I guess linked to that, and part of what I think of when I think of solutions or impact is communicating these kind of messages beyond um, beyond academia, right? Um, the significance of the role of, say, bias uh, for people, for the public, and that kind of thing, right? Because, you know, there's also a need to influence government funding of research and uh, grant uh, providers. 
So uh, how have you thought or uh, reflected on that aspect of your work? And do you have any tips for people who may be doing similar work who have struggled with that kind of cut through? Yeah, I, this is um, a really important point that I had, um, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up because we've actually done uh, workshops with consumers, for example, around uh, the open payments databases. So those are the databases that show how much individuals, again, have been paid by pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and it's super eye opening mm -hmm. to consumers when you do these because they, uh, you know, they're wondering well, one, why is my physician getting paid by a drug company? And maybe they don't really care because they still, you know, trust their physician. They think, you know, their physician is an expert in the topic. But then the, you can show them data showing that, you know, physicians who have these payments tend to have certain prescribing patterns and that gives them pause and it gives them incentive to actually, and we give them tools to do this, talk to their providers about the evidence uh, on a drug. And you know, that's, I think, making people aware that um, research can be influenced by corporate sponsors is powerful. But in today's world, the tricky thing is, uh, you know, people distrust research generally uh, and experts. I mean, this was really highlighted during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a fine line between understanding that uh, evidence is good and that we would like to base our decisions on the best available evidence, but that evidence can be influenced in a certain way. So one way we've approached this in our workshops um, with consumers is not just to open their eyes to some of the impacts of um, industry influence, but to also give them some of the basic tools to evaluate research them themselves. And, you know, uh, it, People can do this. It's it's uh, it, you know you can have some some basic understanding of what's trustworthy and what's not, and where it's coming from, where the research is coming from, is one um, thing to think about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a, a really interesting community led initiative um, that's taken off in Ireland, and it's in relation to uh, not so much research but alcohol industry funded education materials. And it's called iMark, and it's sort of a, a stamp of independence that charities and other organizations can put on their website to say, to reassure consumers that they don't receive any funding from the alcohol industry. And so they're not biased in that way in the information they provide. And it just struck me as a really interesting uh, grassroots-led uh, way to push back, you know, um, against... Uh, that kind of influence and to make sure that if, you know, if someone's running an independent charity, which, you know, often requires a lot of work on a very small budget, especially if you're not going to take funds from the industry itself, that they almost they've earned that right to put that mark of independence, if that makes sense. That is really interesting. There's been been some action in that regard related to um, uh drug industry funded patient groups because there's there's a lot of these like related to specific um so the the patient group will be you know diabetes or uh, you know some specific condition uh but the funding may come solely or partially from drug companies that make treatments for that uh condition and um in australia we actually led a, a, a discussion with the pink peak consumer bodies in Australia who then uh, came up with, they didn't go so far as having one of these ratings, but it was definitely something that was discussed, but definitely came up with um, sort of principles around uh, accepting uh, funding and uh, really uh, raised a big awareness about the risk of accepting funding from the pharmaceutical companies in terms of the influence on the messaging that will come out of the consumer organizations. Mm, absolutely. Well, this this is this has been a fascinating conversation, Lisa. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to oh, me. Oh, I've learned a lot. <laughs> I guess I always try to end um, these kind of conversations with one or two questions that are geared more towards early career researchers and early career advocates or people working in health more generally. And I guess the first question I wanted to ask you is, you know, if you could go back in time and give advice to your to your younger self about embarking on research in this area, 
what advice would you give? Were there things that took you by surprise, um, either in terms of what was difficult about doing this, what was rewarding about doing this? Yeah, I, well, I have three pieces of advice and I, I still reflect on these today. So, you know, it's ongoing. One is, you know, this is so everybody says this, but it's so true. You have to pursue your passions, right? So uh, in this area, you get a lot of uh, pushback. And so you really have to love what you're doing. Um, and in a way you can, and I think this is something that not everybody can, uh, uh, has the personality for, but I certainly do. And a lot of my colleagues do. You have to also appreciate that, that pushback in many ways. Whenever I would get critiqued by industry, I always thought it just made my research better, right? Because they would identify holes potentially, and we'd have to figure out how to, how to fill those. And uh, when I moved to Australia, you'll like this story. I don't know if you've heard it, but um, when I moved to Australia, I had, I was, just, that's when I actually really started digging into uh, work on food industry influence. Um, and I actually had no interest in Coca-Cola at the time, uh, but some emails came out that were published in the Sydney Morning Herald that said that uh, Coca-Cola was monitoring this new University of Sydney investigators research. And there was my picture in the Sydney wow. Morning Herald and saying I was being monitored by Coca-Cola because I did all this research on uh, corporate influences. And, and I have to say my reaction to that was, well, I wasn't going to do anything related to Coca-Cola, but now I, I will. <laughs> um, and, that was, and that was some of the work that uh, Alice Fabri led. We actually did look at research specifically funded by Coca-Cola. And there we found exactly what you were talking about before, that they were much more likely to fund research on physical activity than sugar sweetened beverages. So, so I think that's the first thing. You gotta be passionate and you can even, if you've got the personality for it, revel in the uh, resistance um, <laughs> that you get. Um, I think the second thing, and I've mentioned this as well earlier, is be creative in how you get funding to do your research. You know, there's research topics have fads and uh, you wanna pursue your passion um, and maybe hook it on to whatever that fad is at the time or, you know, um, I use pharmaceutical industry funding as a comparator in a lot of my work. So you got to be creative about how to get it uh, funded. And, and then I think the last thing is just to remember that times change and, um, uh, you know, things will get better. They'll get easier. I will never forget when I, uh, I submitted my first uh, grant as a PI to the National Cancer Institute in the U.S. And the grant was to look at tobacco industry strategies for influencing tobacco research. And it was rejected without even being reviewed uh, with a comment that said, tobacco industry tactics have nothing to do with cancer. <laughs> and uh, that was in 1990, uh, it got rejected without comment. And then by 1994, um, the tobacco industry documents were out. I was publishing the cigarette papers with my co-authors and NCI years later had a whole research program around tobacco industry uh, influence. So, uh, you know, times change and you gotta, you know, go with the flow. <laughs> wow. And one, one final question, which is a little bit trickier, but I've, I've spoken to some early career researchers who have to make quite difficult decisions, especially when they're in, resource-constrained settings. Um, I, I myself um, went to a uh, post-92 university in the UK. Um, it wasn't, you know, I guess uh, what you might call one of the elite universities in the UK. And so in those kind of settings, research funding is more difficult. And that was certainly uh, something I encountered during my PhD and, and many of my, my, my colleagues did as well. And that's still in you know, it's in Northern Ireland, but it's still in the UK. It's in a high-income country. There are other researchers who are trying to do research um, in lower middle-income country settings, you know, where, where resources are far more constrained. And there's, you know, your kind of um, research definitely points to the fact that there are trade-offs in accepting uh, funding from these kind of sources. But in some cases, there aren't really that many options. What advice would you give on how to weigh the trade-offs of uh, corporate funding in, in sort of low resource settings? And have you given much thought to, to how we might 
we might better think that through and equip researchers in those settings uh, to deal with these kind of challenges. Yeah, I, I've actually thought about that a lot because I collaborate with researchers in low resource settings and, uh, you know, it, it is a real, uh, it's a real issue, but, but not just there, you know, as you said, for, for everyone, you know, money, money is tight for research. So I think, you know, you, you have to think about, is there one, I mean, really, is there any other way you can do this research? Um, and if you really think there isn't, but the value of the research outweighs the um, risk of taking industry funding, then you want to see what you can do uh, at an individual or an institutional level to create that transparency and independence. Um, and so, I mean, I have, uh, I've been on a lot of committees on what are called academic industry relations, and I can tell you the standards vary widely among universities. <laughs> and so, if, you know, if you're in a place that basically has no um, review of these academic industry relations, it's going to put you at much greater risk of having your research influenced. Um, but sometimes you do have people at in your setting who can help you with that, um, who you might not even know about. So that's really worth investigating. Like, is there uh, somebody in the contracts department, you know, that that could really, you know, help you make sure that um, you're accepting the money under conditions that are acceptable to you and that retain your independence. And of course, you have to be completely uh, transparent about the role of the funder. And I think the other thing is it just gets back to that. Do you really need that money to answer the question you want to answer? And, and I would have to say, if a sponsor is trying to drive you towards a different question, um, then you really are taking the money just to have the money, right? And not to, and that is the main incentive that people uh, take industry funding for. It's it's to fund research and to get money into their program or their institution. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's the toughest trade-off. Is this really allowing me to independently address the question I want to address? So I, that's what you need to think about. Wow, thank you so much, Lisa. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Great, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, that's it for this episode of Money Power Health. Thanks to my guest, Professor Lisa Barrow, and to you for listening in. I'll leave some links to further reading in the show notes if you want to explore these issues further. As always, if you have any thoughts for future guests or topics, please do drop me an email or DM. My son, Charlie, who has been waiting for me uh, to finish so he can play with me, wanted to contribute to the podcast. So I'll end by handing over to Charlie. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a rating. It helps other people find it. The music in this podcast was by Daniel Manny. You can find more information about his music in the show notes. This announcement was read by the very talented Charlie Manny.